0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Bobby Tudor, founder and former CEO of Tudor Pickering Holt & Company, and current chair of the Houston Energy Transition Initiative. In his new role, Bobby is focused on how Houston can take the lead in the energy transition. We'll talk about the history of Houston, how oil and gas came to play such a big part in its economy, and the strengths that today's energy incumbents can leverage in a transition to net zero. I'll also ask Bobby to imagine what the city's economy might look like in 20 or 30 years, and what roadblocks could stand in the way. Stay with us. Okay, Bobby Tudor, welcome to Resources Radio. It's great to have you on.
1: Thank you, Daniel, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, Bobby, we're going to talk today about the city of Houston and uh, Houston's role in the energy transition. But before we do that, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working in this field in the first place. So what drew you into energy, either as a kid or later in life?
1: Well, I think like many people who end up in any industry, it was a bit accidental. Um, I did grow up in in Louisiana, uh, really during the the height of the the last previous boom in the U.S. oil and gas business. And uh, while my father was not involved in the in the industry, and and um, I wasn't necessarily directly exposed, it was it was all around me. So, for example, many of my high school classmates took jobs after graduation in the offshore oil and gas business, where you go and work offshore in the Gulf of Mexico for two weeks, and then you come back home from two weeks. You you could make more money doing that than you could with most jobs. Uh, that you got with a college degree in Louisiana in 1978, which is when I, which is when I graduated from high school. So, I, I grew up in in sort of the the boom times uh, of the U.S. oil and gas business, and then I came to Rice University in Houston uh, for for college, uh, and I was there from 1978 to '82, and it was really only at the very end of that 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 oil and gas boom had um, had crested and started to turn downward. So. Uh, the oil and gas world was very much a part of my uh, of part of my youth, uh, I- if you will. I ended up at Goldman Sachs in the corporate finance uh, department. and uh, as often happens when they're looking to staff a young associate on a transaction, they think, well, you know, who do we know from that part of the country? <laughs> and uh, I, I was from Louisiana, as, as I mentioned, and had gone to Rice in Houston, and it was an oil and gas transaction. And this was, this was before they had a lot of specialization in the energy finance world. And, and um, they said, well, we have this new young kid from, from Texas, let's put him on it. So I got staffed on my first oil and gas deal and, and uh, spent the next 35 years doing the same thing.
0: Well, wow, That's really funny. Um, I didn't know that about the way that folks were staffed at, uh, at Goldman. Um, did you grow up in southern Louisiana or the north? Or? No,
1: central Louisiana. Uh, it's called Alexandria is the name of the town. Pineville, actually, a, 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 even a smaller town is, is where I grew up and went to high school. Um, and it's right in the middle of Louisiana, sort of on the Mason-Dixon line of Louisiana, if you will. Everything to the south is Cajun and French and everything to the north is is uh, is Protestant and sort of the deep south. And it was a great place to grow up, and uh, and my wife is from the same town. We met in high school, and and still have a lot of connections to Central Louisiana.
0: Wow, that's great. Well, um, let's talk now uh, about Houston, the the place where you uh, live now, and uh, and have lived for for quite some time. Uh, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about you know the potential future role that Houston can play in the energy transition. But let's talk first about its history. Um, I know this is impossible to do in a short period of time, but can you try to give us a thumbnail sketch of kind of how Houston came to prominence, what some of its early industries were and, you know, how it evolved before the energy industry came to prominence?
1: Houston uh, was effectively an invention of a couple of New York city based land speculators (laughs) uh, and uh, who very effectively sold the dream uh, and established uh, a little outpost on the, mosquito infested um, banks of of uh, the buffalo bayou uh, in the in the 1840s and um, the reason they thought it could be interesting was that uh, it could be an effective transportation center or rail center uh, connecting the cotton industry of texas and the um kind of burgeoning lumber industry of east texas so um there is there's something called the big thicket which is just north and and east of of houston uh which is very very dense high quality southern pine saw timber and as uh as the u.s was expanding westward southward and westward the need for that saw timber grew and grew and grew and so (coughs) There was a lot of it in East Texas, and then of course the cotton business in in South Central and West Texas was was booming, and so um, railroad connections to those places became important, um, and that's really kind of the basis of of Houston's founding, uh, if you will. It had nothing to do with oil and gas. <laughs> oil and gas came much later with with the um, with the spindle top. Uh, discovery in beaumont just to the just to the uh east of houston um so it was really a railroad center for for cotton and lumber and and lumber yeah
0: That's great. Well, well, let's talk now about Spindletop and uh, and the emergence of of oil and gas in Houston. So, you know, most of our listeners probably know that oil was first discovered commercially in Pennsylvania and Standard Oil, right? The big uh, industry behemoth that was built by John D. Rockefeller was founded in Ohio. So, can you tell us how Houston came to prominence and you know the role of Spindletop? It's funny. I actually have a a poster of uh, 1901. Oil boom in Spindletop in my office, where there is a a gusher shooting out of an oil rig, and there's actually a band all around it playing, uh, celebrating the well coming in. So, can you tell us about Spindletop and and yeah, how Houston emerged?
1: Well, um, what was unique about Spindletop relative to uh, what Colonel Drake had done in Pennsylvania? It was just one of quantity. So when Spindletop was <clears throat> was discovered, it flowed at approximately a hundred thousand barrels a day for six days in a row which uh were volumes that really had previously never been seen anywhere and the importance of that was was that for for oil to ultimately be used for transportation purposes uh you're going to need to have very very large quantities of it and those quantities really had not existed in the discoveries that had happened in pennsylvania i mean to, to that point oil had really been used for for heating purposes uh and, and and lubricant purposes and so it became possible to really think about oil as a transportation fuel And of course at the same time uh, you really had the development of the internal combustion engine and then ultimately uh ultimately the automobile industry and uh, led by henry ford and, and detroit and so all of that sort of came you know, came together at once, uh, you know, more or less within a, about a 20-year time frame. And in addition to Spindletop, you also had some very large early discoveries in East Texas, uh, north and east of Houston, and you kind of rolled all that together, and it it made Houston sort of geographically important, <laughs> if, if you will, uh, and uh, much in the same way that Standard Oil of Ohio Um, became the behemoth in in that part of the world. Gulf Oil and Texaco um, were the two companies that ultimately developed Spindletop in in that field. And they, of course, today are Chevron. (laughs) So some some of the largest energy companies in the world really uh, were ultimately birthed in those places and continue to be with us today.
0: Yeah. And was it Houston's proximity to uh, the sort of export market that helped make it uh, attractive for many of the companies to locate there? Or was it just like the closest, you know, reasonably sized town?
1: I would say in the beginning, it was more the more the latter. It was the closest reasonably sized town. And there really was no true export market at at that time. Um, Now, around the same time, you had a really another very important event in Houston which was the the um, famous Galveston hurricane the largest natural disaster in the history of the country uh, and the effect of that Galveston hurricane was was that it provided an impetus for the uh, for what ultimately became the Houston ship channel and the creation of Houston as a port effectively displacing Galveston as a port and it was only really with, with that that occurred in those first kind of 20 years of, of this century that, uh, that Houston actually you know, became, a, b- became a port. And of course, as time went on, that became more and more important to, to Houston. It wasn't really though until the 1950s that the Gulf of Mexico became an important piece of the, of the energy puzzle. Uh, but when that happened, Houston was extraordinarily well-placed to be the leader in that industry, uh, as, as well, really because of its, because of its location with the only real competition being New Orleans and, uh, and Houston sort of grabbed the, grabbed the mantle there and, and it very much became the center for offshore oil and gas exploration in the United States as well. So you kind of roll together, Spindletop, East Texas, and the Gulf of Mexico, and and by the 1950s, Houston was quite well established as, as a really important energy capital. Now, it wasn't the only one, and arguably Tulsa, for example, was a bigger, more important town in the energy world than Houston was in in 1960, uh, for example. Uh, but uh, as a as a good lesson in why uh, why policy decisions uh, mattered, Houston built a big international airport and more aggressively built infrastructure and just more commercially went after the opportunities and ultimately uh, towns like Tulsa became uh, very much kind of second fiddle to Houston uh, with regard to the US US oil and gas world
0: yeah and that's a perfect transition to the next kind of phase of our conversation about, you know, strategic investments and uh, thinking about the future of energy. Uh, So before we talk about the energy transition, the sort of long-term energy transition, um, let's talk first about uh, booms and busts, which are, you know, um, a well-known phenomenon in the oil and gas industry. Um, But Houston and Texas as a whole really has been pretty successful in diversifying its economy over the last several decades. Oil and gas is still very important, of course, but not nearly as much as it was, uh, let's say, when, when you graduated college College uh, in the 1980s, let's say.
1: I, I'm, I'm not sure that's true, by the way. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> that, that is the narrative one hears in Houston. Um, but what I would say to that is that we have 25 Fortune 500 companies here. 19 of those 25 uh, come from the incumbent energy world. Now a few of those are in the power business, but uh, but it's it's really probably more dominated by large energy companies today than it was when I graduated from Rice. And 1982 so if you think about large companies that existed here then that don't exist here today compact computer would would be one uh, although we have just recently kind of reattracted Hewlett Packard Enterprises to, to Houston uh, Browning Ferris Industries American General uh, some very large banks Cooper Industries uh, we actually had um, more and larger non energy related companies in Texas uh in uh, in the early 1980s than we do today so uh, i think a a a myth that we've sort of told ourselves in houston in the in the past decade is that we have we have really meaningfully diversified our economy here when that's probably less true than we would like to believe
0: hmm. that's really interesting i was thinking about um you know this there was a report that i read from the i think it was from the dallas fed came out maybe 6 months ago about uh, you know just on a sort of GDP basis that the economy of Texas has become less reliant on oil and gas but it 's interesting to hear that, that you don 't necessarily see it that way uh,
1: yeah I, I i don't and there are other parts of of Texas where, where that 's less true. I mean I think Dallas uh, for example uh, where the Fed is located uh, uh, has has diversified uh, more effectively, but I think also you kind of have to dig behind those numbers and 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 try to understand what diversification you know means and what's the difference between a direct job and an induced job <laughs> for for example and we believe in Houston and greater Houston in our region approximately 40% of our jobs are either direct or induced um, energy industry jobs and that's a, that's a very very high percentage by by any measure it, even if you if you compare it to entertainment in Los Angeles or automobiles in Detroit or finance in New York City it's a, it's a very large number
0: yeah yeah, that's really interesting. And and just so listeners know, the, the idea of an induced job is is one where, let's say, an individual doesn't work for an oil and gas company, but maybe they work for a food services firm that provides catering for the oil and gas company.
1: Exactly. Or, often the, the example I use is that if you run the Subway sandwich shop at the ConocoPhillips headquarters, you think you're in the restaurant business, but actually you're in the oil and gas business.
0: Yeah, yeah. Really interesting. Well, let's transition now and and talk about the energy transition, which is, I know, you know, where you are predominantly focused. Um, when you think about the future of energy, uh, what are some of the key strengths that you think Houston uh, can bring to a, a cleaner energy future?
1: Well, there there are many, and we are we are very excited about and, and focused on our opportunities in in the energy transition here in in, in our region. Um, you start with. With location, you kind of go back to go back to the spindle top analogy, uh, and this time it's a bit different, and it has more to do, frankly, with our port and with our with our uh, export uh, capacity uh, and and import capacity. So Houston, for example, in our region, has become the LNG export capital of uh, of the United States. That's because of our proximity to very low cost natural gas and our, uh, our location on the Gulf of Mexico. Um, it also, uh, is, is a really important sort of hub, if you will, for, uh, for imports. Uh, and so, for example, as you think about the, uh, the importance of batteries to, uh, to the energy transition, um, getting those batteries, uh, produced and then, uh, spread out to the places that it need to be is is a really important piece of the puzzle and Houston is extraordinarily well placed to to be a leader in that as as well our uh, our proximity to very low-cost uh, renewable energy is, is also uh, important I think most people know now that Texas is the largest wind power producer in the u.s and currently the second largest solar power producer and we expect that by the end of this calendar year will we be the largest solar power producer and uh, so we have uh, a lot of that in our region and good access uh to uh to it uh, as we think about everything from from uh green hydrogen to uh to electrifying our heavy industry here, that access to, to renewable power is, is actually a big, big competitive advantage. So for a lot of reasons, we like our, uh, we we like our location. And that's one point. Another would be, uh, we like our, just our, our intellectual capital and, and skill sets. So uh, there are more, for example, there are more chemical engineers per capita in greater houston texas than in any other region in the country by a very long shot and what is the energy transition about it's it's about chemistry <laughs> really at, at its at its heart uh and and so look it, sort of the we're, we're very focused on being the intellectual center of the of the energy transition and to do that, you have to be where the brain power is, and we have we have a lot of it here. Another big part of of our our kind of skill set base, if you will, is has to do with large scale project management, and the energy transition is highly tied to large scale project management, uh, and we are great at that in the incumbent industry business. If you need if you need thousands and thousands and thousands of workers and managers and people deployed to projects to get big complicated things done uh, you come to the companies in in houston texas and and then also all around the edges of it whether it's whether it's you know power trading or geophysics for for geothermal or, um, or electrical engineers, you name it. We just have a lot of it here in our region. So uh, we like our, our skill set and base. And we also just like our entrepreneurial culture. You know, Houston, uh, Houston kind of was, as I, m- I mentioned before, it was a, <laughs> it, w- it was a real estate deal in the beginning by two New York real estate developers uh, who saw commercial opportunity. And that at the end of the day is what Houston is really all about. We are, we're very good at Sort of looking at money on the ground and deciding we want to pick it up, uh, and and to some degree, um, you know, we're we're looking at the, the energy transition that way. We think there's enormous commercial opportunity around the transition. We think we are uh, well positioned to capture it, and uh, and we intend to go after it. So, um, for a lot of reasons, we we really do believe that Houston is extraordinarily well positioned.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um- well, so let's kind of imagine uh, a future scenario, uh, maybe 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, whatever time frame you think is relevant. Um, if everything goes you know, right, uh, according to whatever plan you might have in mind for Houston's economy and, and specifically its energy economy, uh, what do you think the region's uh, economy will look like and what role will energy play?
1: Well, things are changing and, and they're changing reasonably uh, rapidly in, in some sense, uh, but let me start with our kind of base oil and gas business. <clears throat> we do believe that the base oil and gas business in Houston will continue to be quite important to Houston's economy for many decades to come. And I don't know if many decades to come means three decades or five decades, uh, but it means many decades. <laughs> and, and that's because, and, and this has become, uh, I think, very obvious to, to the, the world here in the last few months, the world will will need a lot of hydrocarbons uh for some period of time and uh Houston will continue to be the world capital of of that and the challenges that we face are in fact dual challenges they're, they're the challenges of continuing to provide uh the world with uh, reliable and affordable energy while at the same time making this transition and so um the incumbent industry will continue to be quite important to Houston we just don't think it's likely to be a big growth engine for Houston in the same way that it has been over the course of the past decade or two. So, uh, you know, from 2008 to 2018, that decade, U.S. production went from 5 million barrels to 13 million barrels of oil. And Houston was by far the great kind of metropolitan beneficiary of that trend. That's highly unlikely to happen again. Uh, And if anything, we would expect uh, global demand for oil to peak in in the next decade and then start to flatten and and decline over time. And what that means is given continued efficiencies in the business, we just don't see a bunch of job growth associated with the incumbent business. We see real consolidation amongst the companies. Uh, We don't see a, a ton of new company formation in that in that sector. And so as we're looking for growth, we need to be looking in, in other places. And one obvious other place is in energy transition related companies, where we do think there will be a ton of new company formation. We do think there will be a lot of fundamental demand growth in the business. And we want to make sure that we're well positioned to, to take advantage of that. And so we, we think that the jobs that uh, we might uh, lose due to Ongoing efficiency gains in the incumbent industry can be more than offset by jobs that we will gain uh, via growth uh, in transition-related companies.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. When you think about those transition-related companies, um, how specific do you think the city, um, either as a you know government entity or as a group of you know entrepreneurs, needs to kind of? pick winners or pick losers, let's say. I know, you know, that term is is fraught in a government policy context. But, you know, if you were advising the city on how to invest in the energy transition, would you focus on certain technologies or fuels, or would you focus on, like, enabling conditions?
1: Well, we start with uh, areas where we feel like we do have an embedded strategic advantage. So, for example, all things carbon capture uh, use and storage related, and all things hydrogen related. We feel like we have a fairly obvious competitive advantage in in those two technologies, and we think those two technologies have uh, have great have great promise. I personally am a big believer in in CCUS as a really important piece of the puzzle, uh, but simply because the cost of of completely replumbing the world's energy systems is uh, is prohibitive, and we're going to have to make progress with. CO2 emission reductions in our extant footprint. And the quickest and, and most cost-effective way to do that is via CCUS. So uh, I think, as you know, the largest CCUS project announced in the world by a factor of 10 has been announced in Greater Houston <laughs> on the Houston Ship Channel. Uh, and that that's because the conditions are right here uh, uh, to do a project like that. Um, that has to do with our, our large industrial base we, you know the, the houston ship channel is the largest contiguous industrial complex in north america it has to do with uh, the infrastructure that's already in place it has to do with the geology uh that's uh that's close by that will allow for sequestration etc cetera, etc cetera. so all things ccus we feel like we have a big competitive advantage in and we ought to be all over that Hydrogen is another, is another area where we feel like we have a big competitive advantage. Sixty percent of all the dedicated hydrogen pipelines in the U.S. are in greater Houston, Texas. Six-oh uh, percent. And, you know, furthermore, when it comes to building new pipelines, <laughs> that's something we're good at here. Uh, it, is a, it is a fundamentally sort of well-trodden path when it comes to getting pipelines you know permitted and built in, in our region and we're going to need a lot of that in the hydrogen space you cannot say the same thing about greater new york city or greater chicago <laughs> or greater los angeles or greater san francisco or greater anywhere uh really really so um hydrogen is very promising technology uh particularly as a way to decarbonize the most difficult to decarbonize sectors like cement and steel and petrochemicals and uh, and we have large plants of all of all of those types in our region as as well so those would be you know a a couple of obvious places for us to start and we're we're all over that at the same time um when it comes to you know wind and solar and truly uh non-hydrocarbon based technologies we are also already a meaningful player in that space i would i would I would call, um, you know, biofuels another another space where we're already active and leading. And so, we have those companies here in Houston. Most of the larger companies in those spaces are are headquartered here, uh, as are the industrial gases companies, for example. And so, um, you know, the, we we want to make sure that we are very actively growing in in those areas by attracting those companies and and getting them to expand here and see houston is an important place to be and then finally the whole kind of innovation ecosystem is is an important piece of this puzzle as as well you may know that greentown labs which is the largest climate tech accelerator in north america uh, and headquartered in somerville mass um, opened their their second home in, in the U.S. Uh, one year ago this week in in Houston, and it's been hugely successful. Uh, they are now housing 60 startup climate tech companies. Uh, and one interesting fact I just heard from their team recently was that it took them six years in Somerville, Massachusetts, to get to 60 companies. It took them one year in Houston, Texas, to get to 60 companies. So so innovation. Uh, and entrepreneurship is alive and well, uh, here and, and, and we are very focused on working with our academic institutions, our philanthropic institutions, our, our, uh, state, local and, and federal governments and our incumbent energy world to really kind of supercharge that piece of the pie as well.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting. Fascinating about Greentown. I, I knew about them. I didn't know they were growing quite that quickly. Um, so uh, Bobby, just one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment, um, which is um, you know looking at the other side of the coin, uh, which are the barriers that might stand in the way of a successful energy transition, whether they have to do with policy or politics or infrastructure. What are some of the biggest barriers that you see?
1: One of the things I worry about is something we've just actually recently experienced, which is that underinvestment in the incumbent oil and gas world can lead to humongous disruptions that I believe ultimately will actually slow progress towards the transition. And because what happens when the consumers of energy face enormous uh, price shocks <laughs> is they get very, very focused on what they're paying for, for, for their energy and, uh, and, and get sort of unhappy, uh, if you will. And we, we need a transition that is orderly. Uh, we need a transition that continues to supply reliable and affordable energy uh, to, to the consumers of it. Uh, and we need to be producing enough free cash flow that energy players can use it to invest in new parts of the business. And so you kind of roll all that together. The the volatility that we've recently had in prices is, not, in, in my mind, actually not helpful <laughs> to the to the energy transition. And so we're going to have to somehow make sure that we are investing adequately in the incumbent business to help um, to help navigate this and and have the transition be be an orderly one it is certainly possible on the policy front that we can make poor policy choices that would make uh houston uh uncompetitive uh and you know so so for example um there's still a lot of really important policy uh, choices that that need to be made at the state and local level as well as at the federal level around ccus Uh, so for example the you know where does the liability sit with the co2 that's been sequestered that's a really really important question that no one has really figured out yet and so if if we in, in texas for example came up with a solution there that made us uncompetitive with uh with ohio uh or or illinois uh we could lose our competitive advantage and so that you know that's that's another example of where policy choices really really do matter Um, But other than that, I have to say I'm quite confident that the the pieces are here for us to to still be the energy capital of the world uh, in an energy world that looks quite different 30 years from now than the way it looks today.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. Great points. Um, well, Bobby Tudor, uh, formerly of Tudor Pickering Holt and currently with the Houston Energy Transition Initiative, this has been really fascinating, uh, really enjoyed your perspective. And and we'd like to close it out now with the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard recently uh, that you think is really great and you think our listeners might enjoy. So what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack?
1: Uh, if if your listeners have not read the Bill Gates book on how to avoid a climate disaster, uh, I would highly recommend it. I think I think he gets a lot right. Uh, there he, he he kind of breaks down into its sort of components, if you will, the nature of the challenge, the nature of the cost, and and potential solutions. I think he He probably doesn't pay enough attention to this issue of investing in the incumbent business and and why that is important to an orderly transition, but on the whole, it is very thoughtful, very comprehensive, and very readable, and I highly recommend it.
0: That's great. Really uh, interesting you mentioned that. Uh, One of uh, Gates's lead climate advisors is Ken Caldera, who uh, we had on the show, gosh, I want to say about a year ago. And he was talking about the process of writing that book and collaborating on it. Um, So now that it's out in the world, uh, it'll be great to check out. Excellent. Great. Well, one more time, Bobby Tudor, thank you so much for coming on the show today, helping us understand Houston's energy history uh, and its potential energy future. We really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, Daniel. Thank you for having me.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support Resources for the Future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.